It's the Victorian Variety Show. There is a dread disease which so prepares its victim, as it were, for death, which so refines it of its grosser aspect and throws around familiar looks unearthly indications of the coming change. A dread disease in which the struggle between soul and body is so gradual, quiet, and solemn, and the results so sure that day by day and grain by grain, the mortal part wastes and withers away so that the spirit grows light and sanguine with its lightning load and feeling immortality at hand deems it but a new term of mortal life a disease in which death and life are so strangely blended that death takes the glow and hue of life and life the gaunt and grisly form of death a disease which medicine never cured wealth never warded off or poverty could boast exemption from which sometimes moves in giant strides and sometimes at a tardy sluggish pace but slow or quick is ever sure and certain this is the victorian variety show podcast in which I talk about topics that you may not have heard much about when you studied the Victorian era in school or seen covered by the mainstream media. Or maybe you have heard about or studied the topic, but your teacher or a writer or journalist looked more at, say, character portrayals or metaphors and didn't spend as much time looking at details unless they had a direct impact on the broader theme that was being discussed. Whereas I like to zero in on those details. First, because I find them utterly fascinating, and I hope my listeners do as well, but also because I think that they're important. We need to learn from history, and I think looking at details can help us draw parallels between our own time and a past era really well, which can be helpful when we're looking for a way to move forward and need to figure out what worked and didn't work out so well in the past. My name is Marissa, and I am a history enthusiast, but I've also taken my share of literature classes, and I often open my show with a quote from a Victorian-era literary classic that I feel sets the tone for the topic that I'm going to discuss. The quote I chose for today's episode is taken from chapter 49 of Charles Dickens' novel, Nicholas Nickleby, which I think is a good example, not only of tuberculosis or consumption, as it was normally referred to during the Victorian era, as a popular theme in 19th century literature, and I'll discuss that in more detail shortly, but also of essentially a blurring of the line between life and death which I think emphasizes how Victorians continually found ways to cope with the frequency of death during that time. Along with, as I've explained in previous episodes, phenomena such as elaborate mourning rituals, memento mori, that type of thing. 
But first, I'm going to talk a little bit about tuberculosis. It's a bacterial disease that causes tubercules, which are nodular lesions in body tissues, mainly in the lungs. It's primarily an airborne illness, so it's spread through tiny droplets that are released when people cough or sneeze. According to Matthew Draper in the tuberculosis epidemic, it can be traced back as far as 2400 BC. And I'm talking about it in the present tense because it's still with us. Draper notes that as recently as 2009, an estimated 1.7 million people worldwide died of TB. And many more have what Rachel Crowell in How Tuberculosis Made Edgar Allan Poe Famous calls a latent form of TB, which doesn't cause symptoms and can't be spread, but could turn into active TB at some point. And after I started putting this episode together, I started noticing that in a number of pharmaceutical TV commercials in the United States, the narrator will advise you to consult your doctor before taking the advertised drug if you've had TB or have been tested for it. However, TB death rates began to decline in the first half of the 20th century, thanks to advances in treatment and antibiotics. So even though it's still a dangerous disease with strains that are resistant to some of the drugs that are used to treat it, it's generally not viewed as part of the day-to-day -day reality of people in many parts of the world, and overall is still considered treatable. Although, as Crowell suggests, access to treatment unfortunately is often not readily available in the countries that need it most, such as India and several other countries in Asia and Africa. In the 18th and 19th centuries, however, when TB was an epidemic, it affected a sizable percentage of the population in Europe and in North America. Draper estimates that it killed one in five Americans in 1870. Anne believes figures were similar in Britain during this time. And to be clear, not everyone who caught TB back then died from it. Although Draper notes that in the 19th century, up to 80% of those who contracted TB in the U.S. and Europe ultimately died from it. In addition to consumption, which, as Lauren Smith explains in Then Versus Now, what happened to consumption, was used to refer to many diseases that wasted the body, but became associated most closely with TB. It was also called, quote-unquote, the Great White Plague in the 18th century due to the extreme power that it caused in its sufferers. And, as Philippa Ogden mentions in Romanticizing Death, Art in the Age of Tuberculosis, the, quote-unquote, robber of youth due to the number of younger people who died from TB. Ogden notes that between 1851 and 1910, approximately one-third of the estimated four million people who died of TB in England and Wales alone were between the ages of 15 and 34, and approximately half were between 20 and 24. As you might expect from someone suffering from a pulmonary illness, a TB sufferer was likely to experience chest pain and cough a great deal, and often coughed up blood as well as fevers, night sweats, fatigue, aches, and loss of appetite, 
which usually resulted in weight loss, were also common among TB sufferers. Another thing that I think it's important to highlight is that TB generally did not kill quickly. As Ogden explains, someone diagnosed with TB in the 19th century could live up to three years after they were diagnosed. I remember watching an episode of the Amazon Prime series Lore last year. It was just one episode about this. The entire series, each episode was about a different time period and a different event. But this particular episode was about a New England farmer played by Campbell Scott who lost several of his children to TB in the late 19th century. And his son in particular struggled with it for a long time. He went to a sanatorium for a while and even seemed to get better. I won't say any more because I don't want to spoil it for anyone who might want to watch it. But basically, this episode takes place over a period of several years, even though in itself it's short. It's only, I think, a little over a half hour long, this particular episode. So that's a somewhat condensed description of TB. There are more symptoms, but those are the ones that I think most of us are most likely to think of when we hear about TB. And the most relevant to what I'm going to discuss next. I'll be honest, TB sounds like no fun. I had pneumonia as a kid, and I can tell you that coughing up blood, even if it's just in the sputum, is pretty nasty. And the thought that a lot of TB victims lived with it for several years makes it sound especially cruel to me, as does the fact that it claimed a lot of young people. But if you're a Victorian-era history enthusiast, it may not surprise you to learn that in the 19th century, TB was viewed differently by many than it is now. And much of its appeal back then seems to be based on what seems most unpleasant to us today. Ogden explains that patients who knew that they might live months or even years with TB were able to create wills, settle affairs with their loved ones, and plan for their deaths. It's important to remember that, as I've discussed in previous episodes, during the Victorian era, preserving one's dignity and appearing well-mannered remained of the utmost importance, even as people regularly stared death in the face. So it's understandable that, as Ogden explains, TB symptoms were seen as more mild and therefore preferable in the sense that they would allow one to maintain one's dignity and be less likely to offend others than, say, vomiting and diarrhea, which are frequently found among, say, cholera and plague sufferers, or as Trista, no less name that I could find, points out in an article called Tuberculosis Became the Victorian Standard of Beauty, smallpox, which caused physical disfigurement. And as you might have guessed, Classism also seemed to play a role in this idea that TB was preferable to other diseases of the time, since well-to-do people could catch it just like everyone else, unlike, say, cholera, which was found predominantly in poorer, overcrowded areas. The idea that a death from TB could be less unpleasant and more peaceful, not to mention easier to plan for, than deaths from other diseases led many to believe that TB allowed its victims to, quote, die well, end quote, 
and the notion of the so-called good death. And when it's viewed from this perspective, I think it makes more sense. In a time when many people put off talking or even thinking about these matters until it's literally too late, which I've also talked about in previous episodes, I think we can learn something from this viewpoint. The romanticization of TB began prior to the Victorian era, several decades before the likes of Dickens, Charlotte Bronte, who lost her sisters and Anne Emily to tuberculosis, and Edgar Allan Poe, whose mother and wife died of TB, wrote about it along with other contemporaries. Romantic poets like John Keats and Percy Bysshe Shelley were writing about it. In fact, Keats's death from TB in 1821 at the age of 25 inspired one of Shelley's best known works, Adonais. And Ogden observes that a sketch made of Keats on his deathbed by an artist named Joseph Severn portrays Keats as serene, looking as though he's only sleeping. According to Ogden, historian Catherine Byrne cites portrayals like these as an example of the, quote, too good to live cultural stereotype, end quote in which a young scholar or artist is more or less martyred by their untimely passing. As a result, young, beautiful tuberculosis victims soon became a theme in fiction and other types of art. They were often portrayed as noble and good, and their deaths might serve as metaphors for lost opportunities or the unfairness of life or inspiration for survivors, both positive or negative. For example, Norwegian artist Edvard Munch remained deeply affected by the deaths from TB of his mother and sister throughout his life, as can be seen from paintings like Death in the Sick Room and The Sick Child. Eventually, TB appeared often enough in art and literature to become a recognizable symbol of things to come. For example, as Imogen Clark explains in Tuberculosis, a fashionable disease, quote, we're now almost trained to recognize the coughing of blood into a handkerchief in act one, meaning the inevitable death of that character by act three, end quote. This idealization of TB extended from art and literature to Victorian era makeup and fashion, which actually I think is a form of art. Carolyn Day, an assistant professor of history at Furman University, cited by Emily Mullen in How Tuberculosis Shaped Victorian Fashion, explains that between 1780 and 1850, Feminine beauty standards more or less became interwoven with the aestheticization of TB. According to Day, quote, that's because tuberculosis enhances those things that are already established as beautiful in women, end quote, such as the pale skin and thinness due to weight loss that are caused by the disease. During this time, women commonly used lethal ingredients to achieve the desired pale look. For example, they could drop by their local chemist and buy a few packs of those arsenic complexion wafers I talked about in my episode on the Victorian era pharmacy a few months ago. 
Mullen points out that makeup trends of the time sought to replicate the effects of TB-induced fever, such as pink cheeks, red lips, and eyes that were bright and sparkling. I've been wanting to do an episode just on Victorian era makeup for some time, and I'm still planning on doing one, so I won't go into much more detail here, but I think you can see that some of these trends are still with us. Granted, makeup trends tend to change. One season or one year, rosy cheeks might be in, and then the next they might be out, and say earth tones or the no makeup look might be in, but then everything will change and rosy cheeks might be back in again. I don't watch Project Runway anymore, so I'm not up on current makeup trends and I'm not making fun of Project Runway. I did actually watch it religiously a few years ago, but enough on that. In a similar vein, some other popular trends of mid-19th century quote-unquote consumptive chic were more revealing chests and necklines that highlighted the pale skin of women's necks and shoulders and prominent collarbones, as well as pointed corsets and full skirts that were designed to highlight women's midsections. The more waifish women's waists were, and the more fragile their overall frame, the better. As Trista explains, the Victorian era was very patriarchal and, quote, Women were viewed as delicate, frail creatures that needed to be cared for by men. The image of the fragile, pale woman on a fainting couch is an iconic scene of the period. Women were viewed as almost childlike in the period, with the need for caretakers and supervision. A thin, fragile, bird-like woman was the ideal." End quote. This is another example of something from the Victorian era that at first we might look upon with horror, but I'm old enough to remember when the so-called waif look epitomized by Kate Moss and other supermodels in the early 1990s was all the rage. It was referred to as the quote unquote heroine chic look back then, but I think the idea was the same. And eating disorders were associated with the modeling industry even before that, and that hasn't changed. And unfortunately, many women and some men who aren't involved in the fashion industry have experienced an eating disorder at some point, or know someone who has. So while we may no longer think we find consumptive chic so chic, the reality is that features of it have withstood the test of time, in some cases, unfortunately. And if any male listeners are starting to feel excluded, I hear you. Men did suffer from TB too, after all. So men's fashion trends were also affected. For example, beards, mustaches, and sideburns were popular on both sides of the pond, so to speak, during the Victorian era. Mullen points out that during the Crimean War in the 1850s, many British soldiers grew facial hair to keep their faces warm. And in the U.S., razors were hard to use and could cause infection if they weren't cleaned properly. So many men opted not to shave. However, after germ theory began to gain traction in the second half of the 19th century, 
and particularly after Robert Koch or Koch, I'm not sure how his name's pronounced exactly, announced that he discovered and isolated the bacteria that caused TB in 1882. The idea that unkempt facial hair might be an attractive breeding ground for TB and a host of other dangerous bacteria began to spread, pun intended, so that in the first few decades of the 20th century, you started to see a lot more men who were clean shaven, or at most they might have a mustache, but no bushy beard that might host a ton of bacteria. After Koch's groundbreaking discovery, the romanticization of TB fell out of favor. In the anti-spitting campaigns designed to stop the spread of tuberculosis, Shaughnessy Farrow explains that New York banned spitting on sidewalks and in other public areas in 1896. And over the next 15 years, nearly 150 other U.S. cities did the same. Public health organizations created anti-spitting slogans along the lines of, quote, beware the careless spitter, end quote, and, quote, no spit, no consumption, end quote put up posters warning of the dangers of spitting, and encouraged people to call out those that they saw spitting in public. And apparently, if you were afraid of approaching a spitter, you could still do your part by giving them the stink eye, according to Pharaoh. That's right, the stink eye. And Mullen tells us that in both the US and Europe, physicians and journalists sought to inform of the dangers of women's clothing pointing out that women could bring germs home if their long dresses dragged in the street and that tight corsets could restrict breathing and blood circulation. And by the end of the 19th century, doctors were advising people to carry small bottles with them that they could discreetly spit their phlegm into. Some of these were rather ornately decorated, such as the quote unquote Blue Henry which Pharaoh tells us was a cobalt blue glass flask invented by the German doctor Peter Detweiler, a tuberculosis survivor who went on to found his own sanatorium. In the early 20th century, a number of cities also began handing out free paper cups that people could spit into, which could later be burned. As Pharaoh explains, it was widely recommended during this time that anything contaminated with TB be burned. I'm going to end my discussion of how TB was viewed and idealized during the 19th century here. But I just want to add that I think this is an important topic to discuss, not only because TB can be found in so many works of art and literature during this period and inspired lifestyle trends, but also because this incorporation of TB into everyday life reminds me of something that, again, I've discussed quite a bit in previous episodes, like how people during the Victorian period found ways to deal with the many dangers they faced and accepted the fact that we're all going to die. I think on the one hand that it's very important to remember that TB remains to this day a dangerous illness that sadly kills many people around the world each year. And looking back to the Victorian era, we can see how the idea of starving oneself to fit into a tight corset was problematic not only back then, but also how it may have helped to set a precedent for modern day eating disorders.
But on the other hand, I think the current way of dealing with things like a certain infectious disease that's been in the news a lot these last few years, namely like pretending that it's going away just because we're tired of dealing with it, causes more problems than it's worth. So maybe by looking at the Victorians and how they dealt with TB, maybe we can see that maybe they were onto something that we could learn from. But now I'd really like to know what you think. Please email me at the Victorian Variety Show at gmail.com or leave me a voice message at https colon slash slash anchor.fm slash marissa hyphen d96 slash message. You can also follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash Victorian Variety One. If you'd like to support this show financially, you can do so at www.buymeacoffee.com slash marissadf13 or by leaving a tip if you're listening to this on the Good Pods app. And I'd greatly appreciate it if you could take a moment to rate and review this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Good Pods, Spotify, or Podchaser. Who is donating 25 cents to World Central Kitchen's hashtag Chefs for Ukraine efforts for every review left there during the month of April, and 50 cents every time the podcaster replies? World Central Kitchen is the nonprofit started by Chef Jose Andres, whom I'm a fan of, and they've been doing a lot of good over in Ukraine since this war started. So every review on Podchaser this month is for a great cause. And I would also like to give a shout out to the Ye Old Crime podcast for bringing this to my attention. And by the way, if you haven't checked out Ye Old Crime yet, I highly recommend you give them a listen because they're pretty awesome. Thank you so much for listening and for all of your support and feedback. It makes me feel so good that people are checking out this show and getting something from it. And I want to keep putting out content that's informative and piques your interest. I'll be leaving links to all of the resources that I consulted in the show notes for this episode, and I do hope you'll check them out. And I'll also be back in two weeks with a brand new episode. But in the meantime, I'm going to leave you with a quote from Chapter 9 of Jane Eyre by Charlotte Bronte. The words are spoken to Jane by Helen Burns, who is wasting away of consumption and, sadly, dies in Jane's arms soon afterward. To be honest, when I was putting this episode together, I originally planned to start off with this quote, but I ultimately decided that the Dickens quote would serve as a better introduction to a discussion of TB. And I think this quote is appropriate for this point in this episode, not so much because it's the end. In fact, by mentioning the quote-unquote great sufferings that she'll escape from, Helen almost makes her impending death sound like a new beginning, you might say. But I think it shows really well how this type of extended illness was seen as leading to a good death because it allowed its victim to leave this dimension with peace of mind and offered closure to those the victim would leave behind. But this is the end of the episode, and I also think it's a powerful image to leave you with.
very happy, Jane. And when you hear that I am dead, you must be sure and not grieve. There is nothing to grieve about. We all must die one day. And the illness which is removing me is not painful. It is gentle and gradual. My mind is at rest. I leave no one to regret me much. I have only a father, and he is lately married and will not miss me. By dying young, I shall escape great sufferings. I had not qualities or talents to make my way very well in the world. I should have been continually at fault.